0: With Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. welcome to the latest episode of the RoboHub podcast. In today's episode, we're going to the International Conference on Robotics and Automation, ICRA, which took place just a couple of weeks ago in Brisbane, Australia. ICRA is the IEEE Robotics and Automation Society's flagship conference and is a premier international forum for robotics researchers to present their work. You may remember that back in March and April, we asked you, our listeners, to consider supporting the podcast through our Patreon campaign with the specific goal of enabling us to send someone to ICRA. Well, thanks in part to your generosity, our interviewer Audro went to ICRA and brought back some pretty cool interviews from the exhibition hall. So today we'll get to share in some of the conference action. First up, Audro's interview with Yuxi Leitner. Postdoctoral research fellow at Queensland University of Technology, whose robot won the Amazon Picking Challenge 2017. They discuss what the team did differently from other teams and how they managed to win the competition.
1: Hi, welcome to RoboHub Podcast. Hi, hello. Would you introduce yourself? I'm Yuxa Leitner. I'm a research fellow at the Australian Centre for Robotic Vision and I'm based here in Brisbane, Australia. Gotcha. Would you tell me about Cartman? Cartman is our pick-and-place robot that we used during the Amazon Robotics Challenge in 2017. It's actually the winning entry of the Amazon Robotics Challenge. So we won the $8,000 price money. And Cartman is a cubular-shaped thing. You're going to get pictures that you probably put on the webpage later on. Um, And it's basically a very cheap robot that needs to look into a tote, um, where there's a scrambled mass of tote being a box toad yeah, being a, sorry sorry toad being a box yes uh, in Amazon terminology that's a toad over there ah. it's basically a box-shaped red thing about like what 20 centimeters deep around 30 by 50 centimeters uh, wide okay and there's about 10 to 20 objects that are placed in there, so it's actually quite jambled up and there's a lot of clutter mm-hmm. so there's a lot of inclusions. Um, we do know what is in the box, but we do not know where it is in the box, right? Mm. So in the Amazon warehouses, you find a lot of objects, and they, they know in what shelf it is, but they don't know where it is exactly. So you need to have a human that looks in it, says, oh, you ordered a DVD, sticks the hand in, picks up the DVD, and puts it in your cardboard box. Mm-hmm. The robot has to do exactly the same thing. Uh, so what we do is we move the robot uh, over one specific box. So you see box A and box B back there. Uh, so we do know... For example, if you ordered one of the DVDs, we know that they're in box A, so we move the robot over box A. We take an image uh, with an Intel RealSense camera, both a two. With what kind of camera? Intel RealSense. It's a oh. commercial product, very cheap. Uh, provides. Is it RGB D. Uh RGB? So RGBD. So Structured so lighting. Exactly, it provides both a color image but also a depth image, and from that we use uh, the color image mainly for classification, so identification of the object and classification. Uh, we get a pixelized label out that tells us where the object is actually located in the box. We then do uh, uh, a prediction of where the grasp points are for that object, and for that we actually use the depth information. So, based on the depth information, we find clusters on the object surface that we want to either use a vacuum suction or a pinch grasp around. So ah, we have, you have two multiple models, different grap- yes. graspers,
2: and just. As examples, some of the objects you have in there, yeah. I see an ice tray, so a, a cold and spring water bottle, just to give an idea. Of yeah, so there's,
1: um, there's standard Amazon objects like a DVD mm. and books. But there's also a variety of really tricky objects, both from a visual perception but also a manipulation point of view. Mm -hmm. And I assume Amazon put them in there so to make the challenge a bit harder. More difficult, yes. So you can see, for example, a bath sponge back there. So that's highly deformable. With a lot of bristles. Exactly, so it's highly deformable. Not very easy to suck on with a vacuum cup, so you need a gripper for this. There's a bag of marbles, very tricky to handle. Um, Mm. There's a plastic bottle of water, so it's very see-through. That's hard from a perception point of view. Uh, So everything from like a small flashlight up to like a, what's the heaviest object is I think a three pound dumbbell. The biggest one is like a pack of 10 socks, so that's quite large Mm -hmm. in volume. And then
2: so you use the RGB, the camera, the RGB is used for classification. You find where it is and then you use the depth to figure out how to pick it up.
1: So basically what we do, as I said before, we move the the camera on top of the tote, top of the, the box we take an image of that uh, in the color space we have a deep learning approach using a, a, what's called a refine net. it's a specific architecture that gives you labels per pixel so okay. basically you take an image you get pixels per labels so you can find the cluster of that object that you want which as I said before is a bit tricky if you have a lot of things in there and you get clutter it yep. might and, see half of it. and things. exactly yeah. so based on that one we then find the specific object and once we do have the, lo- the object location in the, in the box we then use Various fallback methods on how to actually get a three D point cloud out of it, because some of these objects are highly reflective, which is not so good for a depth camera, especially mm-hmm. a cheap one. Yeah. So if you get a perfectly nice cover, for example, from a DVD uh, or, yeah. or a Kleenex box, of the water bottle, or, of, or the shiny foil wrap, exactly, then we don't get a lot of depth images out. So from that point of view, we try to fall back and use the two D information. We try to basically step quite literally, with the suction cup into the middle of what we can see of the object. Uh, as a safety mechanism, there's a, a scale under all of these boxes. And the scale provides us with both feedback when we run into things, but also as a secondary measure that nice. actually tells us how much weight we lifted out of the box. And we do know the weight of the objects, so therefore we have a secondary classification that basically can tell us yes have to pick up the, wrong, uh, the right or the wrong object, or, nice. for example, accidentally if you pick up two of the objects. Ah. Right, what you see with lots of these robots, like if you and I pick up an object, we realize that there's two objects and we pick up only one out of them. Most of the robotic systems don't really have that feedback loop. So what we use is the scales to actually say, well, that doesn't seem to be the right weight, so maybe we check again. So either we place both, like, the the hand back into the box and place everything back in and try again, or um, if it's just a few grams, we might actually do a secondary uh, visual check. So we have a secondary camera during the challenge, and that takes a secondary look at it, and now we have reduced clutter. There's at least... Most of the objects we know that are stayed in the box, so it might be one or two objects. So we do a secondary classification on that one.
2: Gotcha. Okay. And so what did you, uh, so
1: you guys were the winners. Yeah. What did you guys do differently than a lot of the teams? <laughs> Is it the
2: two big, the two grippers and mm-hmm. also the
1: scale? So we were the only team that used this Cartesian design. A lot of the other teams had one or two standard seven degree of freedom robotic arms. Um, so, one of the things that we did different is the robotic system. And the that Cartesian, is, it's kind of like a big 3D printer. It's like a sense. big claw game or 3D printer. Um, yeah. So, it's like three axes that move it X, Y, Z. So, it just moves down. It to just pick up moves the object down once um, it's in position vertically. Exactly. So, we do have uh, an extra degree of freedom each of the modalities so that we can bend angle the it. suction, exactly, to, to angle things that, for example, a book that leans against the shelf yep. uh, or, or the edge of the shelf. And the extra degree of freedom to close the gripper, right? So that these are in there. Um, I think there's a lot of teams that sort of converge to a similar uh, so th- pipeline uh, on like a vision and uh, perception pipeline. A lot of teams had two modalities. Um, and I think in the end, there's still a lot of robustness issues with these things. Well, I think one of the big differences that we did was we had... This robot built up to this from scratch here, and we tried to be really, early on, integrating everything. Right, so we t- did test runs from basically week two of actually being in the challenge. and oh, we so had about, you guys got a lot more trials than I most think one of the one things games. is we, we did a lot more trials, um, and I think that sort of helped us. We knew Definitely. when things failed where most of the problems are, and mm-hmm. you, you saw during the challenge a lot of teams had problems and stuff was failing. Um, it's still a, a research competition, right? It's not like a, a product Definitely. yet a lot of these robots did fail um, from you know from a computer fail all the way to like a fuse blowing yep. so um, I think one of the advantages that the, the top teams had were they knew where to tackle these problems ah. problems would arise on the last few days there in the challenge in Japan and I think th- that sort of separated some of the teams was that you knew how to fix them because you've seen those errors before because you were running a lot of trials before Ah, that's a good point Okay, and then the advantage, did other teams also use multiple types of grippers? So, most of the top teams had uh, multiple modalities, so either suction uh, or pinch graspers. There's obvious different ways of attaching them. So, one of the advantages of using the Cartesian system is that you don't have to fit it into a tight hand. But if you're on an arm, you only have a certain amount of space where you can fit both a suction cup and a finger into. You saw some of the teams that sort of had fold out fingers on the suction cup, but tried to integrate very tightly. The advantage of the Cartesian system is we can use all the other space up here to yeah. rotate around. So we rotate 90 degrees up here, and then you go down. Ah, it's, I see. So that allows us to be a lot more yeah. flexible. and are not constrained to a hand. Yes. The, so
2: the, the part that would do the picking up, I mean, it's, it's quite large because it has these different modalities for picking up something. Yep. And you said you
1: rotate it to do Yeah, it. so from the picture right now, basically, this is the wrist joint. We rotate around 90 degrees here. So we yep. rotate either the section cup down or the pinch grasper down ah. once we're at the location. Gotcha.
2: So it has um, kind of like a pole, and on one end of the pole is the pinch gripper, and on the other end is the suction cup. Exactly. And so you rotate the end down that you want. And if say a book is on an angle, you don't rotate it ninety degrees; you rotate it. I uh, we still
1: rotate it ninety degrees because we have an extra degree of freedom oh, at the I end, see. which we which allows us to bend only the the vacuum uh, lip at the bottom. yeah right? So we can rotate that one up to let's say eighty degrees in each direction. Gotcha. So there's a little belt drive that rotates the.
2: Um, sucker yes gotcha. very interesting is there um, what's the future of the Amazon picking challenge is it still going will you guys be competing uh, so did, Amazon did robotics
1: has stopped uh, running the challenges they've moved more into uh, funding research through grants scheme instead of a competition um, They've. you might have to ask them what the reasons for that are uh, the, the official statements that we get is that we want to focus on specific parts of ah, of the problem. So we give grants, for example, for soft hand for manipulation, for machine learning, uh, whereas the challenge was always trying to focus the integration of all these. Um, so that, what, what is the future for us from a, from a research point of view? We're interested in seeing how we can close the loop between visual perception and grasping, but we're also interested in highly dexterous manipulation work, so how... How do we design better hands? And that actually means hands and not just two pinch graphs, but do we need multiple fingers? How do we build those systems? How do we create uh, feedback for that system? For example, for a suction cup, you basically have one point on the object that you need to attach to. If you have three fingers, you all suddenly need three points, and that's adding to the complexity. How do you place your points, your attachment points along an object? Uh, that's a few open questions in research, and that's what we are doing right now. Gotcha. Thank you. No worries.
0: Next, Audra went to the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, CSIRO, Exhibition, and had a chat with engineers Nicholas Panitz, Ben Wilson and James Brett about their multi-purpose hexapod robots. They discussed the design of the hexapods and how research works at CSIRO.
3: Hi, welcome to RoboHUB Podcast. Hey, uh, I'm Ben. And I'm James from CSIRO. Would you guys tell me about CSIRO? Yeah, uh, CSIRO is Australia's uh, leading research organization. Uh, We take up the field of legged robotics as well as uh, aerial mapping and uh, ground mapping with autonomous systems. So,
2: you have the legged robots here. Would you tell
3: me about what you have? Yeah, so what we have in front of us is uh, Max, he's the largest one. He can stand up to about 2.6 meters, I believe is his overall height when at full stretch. Um, He's just over a metre long, but the legs added onto it will put him up to about a metre and a half by about, I think he was two metres wide as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And he weighs about 60 kilo. And it's a big hexapod. It is a big hexapod. Six legs. legs. And um, it it is part of our strategic direction at Syro to go into ultralight robotics and legged robotics. Why? So Max here, his sole purpose is to be as light as possible but carry as much payload as possible Gotcha.
2: so just talking about
3: him being light he's mm-hmm. carbon fiber legs yeah so? he's carbon fiber legs the body will eventually be carbon fiber but at the moment he is research based so gotcha uh, and uh, the heaviest thing is the batteries you have what, batteries are definitely batteries. yeah <laughs> there are uh, lithium ion batteries in there but they are definitely the heaviest i'd say they are roughly about 20 kilos of the overall weight is just in battery
2: Okay, and so you have these big legs, a lot of carbon fiber.
3: So you're telling why do we want a big, light robot? Okay, so the main reason where we see value in the legged robotics is the ability for them to traverse uneven terrain. And so you'll have the issues where you can take a track robot or whatever um, and run it across terrain, and it does a lot of damage to the terrain itself. Um, As the legged robots themselves don't, they tend to only have... This one, as such, has six points of contact when it's on the ground, and they're no bigger than a tennis ball, as you can see, each point. Each Um, foot looks like a racquetball. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, that's that's the main reason. So when you're going through terrain, you're not damaging it, but you're also able to traverse quite challenging terrain in itself. Uh, And the reason for lightweight is uh, it's high payload capability for the weight, so we can easily transport it. And it means that while it's moving oh, you around. Mean it's by easy itself, for
2: people to move.
3: Yeah, itself, but it also for itself. It's efficient because yeah, it's light? because it, it's light, it can move itself efficiently. And um, yeah, it, it's highly dynamic because of that. What do you mean? So it can move quicker than if it was heavier ah, due to okay. its light weight to begin with. Gotcha.
2: Now, one thing that I notice about this is it doesn't look like there's a lot of compliance in it, it doesn't look like there's. Um, any give
3: yeah well uh, actually with this uh, ultralight robot other than the feet there yeah. is there is a lot more compliance uh, the The legs are, because they're so long and thin they they're actually very flexible uh, so that's part oh. of the research area is into uh, these more compliant systems that are very difficult to create a model of uh, and yeah that's where a bunch of our research is so with with other uh, larger robots, uh, they're a lot heavier because they're uh, made of uh, usually yeah rigid metals uh, because that's easier yeah, so to, to model. This will
2: be more compliant than yeah, that. yeah, yeah. very okay. very flexible. I'm, just, I'm thinking for if it's going over rough terrain and stuff, and the terrain is bumpy, I'm yeah. wondering if it would have trouble because I mean you say these are. Somewhat compliant, the long legs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but uh, feeling them, they feel quite rigid. Maybe because it's weight bearing
3: at the moment. Yeah. So uh, uh, you can see on the screen behind you that uh, his motion as he goes through, when it actually has weight on it, you can see there's quite a bit. That of is flex. a bit of difference uh, And so we're trying to model that and get it into the gate itself. So as you you can use that as a spring force, yes. and then you can prepare yourself along with that, making the robot again more efficient. Hmm. Um, and just not strip your gears and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, what? For I and mean, so is this is for agricultural purposes, monitoring environments. Like what? Yeah. What kind of yeah. things.
3: So there's definitely the agricultural aspect of it, um, and there was a small one uh, that the guys took over to the Amazon recently as well to do uh, monitoring of the, the, I guess, the biodiversity over there. Uh, and that's it's more so just anything where you need long loiter times essentially. So, long what loiter times, so where uh. you need this thing to stay out in the field for a prolonged period of time. When do you need long loiter times? Well, that's when we're doing, so the monitoring of the biodiversity inside the Amazon. Ah, uh, if you want to so walk out it out
2: there and then leave it as a big mobile sensor, but essentially, for a while, yep. and walk it back, exactly.
3: Yeah, and because of the, the difficulty of the terrain out there, legged uh, vehicles have the advantage.
2: Cool. Uh, so what, tell me about some of the smaller like Yeah, a,
3: yeah so the, the ones underneath are probably um, six I guess trying to explain the size of them, about six hundred mil by I don't know four hundred high. Uh, and they can go down to this little guy. I'll say two
2: feet by two feet
3: by one foot <laughs> tall. Yeah, yeah. And then the smaller guy here is about a foot by I don't know, we'd say half a foot tall when it's standing. And a our, foot foot circumference that is. Yes. I sir. mean diameter. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And then, uh, so the purpose of these smaller ones yeah. is to test out different control strategies for legged robots? Mm-hmm. A, yeah. They also use... Hey, the new person. Yeah. Yeah. So Sorry, you introduce um, yourself.
4: Nicholas Parrott's research engineer for CSIRO. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Okay,
2: what were you saying about... Um, so the... the
4: small ones, they're kind of used for remote inspection. Um, so, hmm. like, this one was sort of designed to go inside a roof cavity to... Um, Inspect without uh, having to send someone up or really confined spaces. Um, the small one over there you can use for remote inspection of like um, like gas and around like dangerous areas where you don't yes. want to send a human. So you can just sort of gotcha. live stream the video.
2: Now gotcha. all of, all of these are hexapods.
3: Yes. Why? Um, James, you're up. Sorry. <laughs> Why hexapods? Why hexapods? Uh, once again, it was for the main reason is its ability to move through areas where you couldn't conventionally get a, a tracked robot or a wheel. What about robot? a quadruped? What so the octopped? quadruped itself isn't, uh, when you're moving it's not statically stable. Yeah, so the, the hexapods allow you to have a triangular base at the very least. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, well in saying that you can move one leg at a time and then you get five points of contact on the ground at all points and that makes it... Or you can keep three and then move the other Exactly, so that's a tripod things. gate. Uh, and that's one of the things we play around with as well as the gate of the, the robot. Mm-hmm. Um but that is essentially why, even though you get more efficiency out of the quadruped because you not, you have two redundant legs essentially in the hexapod, mm-hmm. um, the stability that it adds is beneficial.
2: Gotcha. And so these are easier to control because yes. they're yep. statically
3: stable. Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, yeah, we also can use the arms to like um, manipulate
4: manipulate things? the environment. So there is in the video. Which All them the see, point feet though. Uh, as far yes. as I can tell, yes. So as, at the but moment you just we push. just push. Yeah, we can just push rocks. There is a video of it coming up where we went to the. It is an audio podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I was just—I was going to explain what it is. Ah, we went down well, to like it was the um, down in Sydney. There's like a Mars, a fake Mars um, land, at the museum, and we were just moving some of the rocks around to show that you can move environment and then inspect under them or near them in mm-hmm. case there's occlusions for whatever you're trying to sense.
2: Gotcha. So in. Uh... Especially these smaller robots, it looks like you have Dynamixel servos, and they um, there's no serious elasticity. With them. I'm just I'm wondering, is it difficult? You you have these robots for inspection and these kinds of things. I'm wondering if you want some sort of compliance for walking on not perfectly flat
3: terrain. Does it uh, make it difficult? Otherwise, or any thoughts? Uh, so with the Dynamixels themselves, we've been. Uh, some you put of the them in control- zero gravity mode <laughs> <laughs> or something so yeah well some of the control algorithms uh, have they've got an impedance control to them so ah. you can um, detect when you're not on you're on uneven ground or whatever and the feet themselves will adjust position depending gotcha. on how much pressure is at each foot tip gotcha. uh, and that's why you see the squash balls on the end of max here himself is we have pressure sensors in each one of the feet for oh, yeah? some of those Gotcha. Fo- yes, little, so okay. is, yeah
2: and that's the big one
3: yeah that's the that's the big one yeah, and gotcha. then the smaller ones have it within the, the motors themselves. So we can read back, talk, or
2: not. Gotcha. Okay, uh, so these all are prototypes at the moment. Um, yes. How does it work? Do you commercialize at any point? Do you? How, what's kind of the goal so, of all of these?
3: Yeah. So Saro's main position is uh, IP generation. Mm. So we we want the. Who unlike, then gets
2: to use the IP though?
3: that is up to commercialization partners or whatever it's not our they license
2: it other companies yes, will license other it other companies will ah. license
3: it so saros goal is not to uh, at a good rate I suppose if they're an Australian company uh, it, it's up to I guess the once you to go into a conversation about it yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah to be honest I have never been involved in that side of it we just do the product right so um.
4: So sometimes we also have external partners that come to us and they want something. They propose
3: a problem. Yeah, basically. and
4: so we can sort of take one of ours and adapt it to whatever problem they have. Then that goes through like a technology handover. We hand it over, and then they commercialize it themselves in their own area, whatever problem oh, they I need. See. So because we're more of a research organization, we don't actually do any commercialization ourselves. It's sort of we have like sometimes we have spin-out companies that spin out out of us. Or yeah, or if there's a company that comes to us be either license or do a technology handover. Depending okay. on the
2: contract. Yeah. Okay. Thank that's you. Nice.
0: And that's the end of today's episode from the exhibition hall at ICRA. As we said earlier, your generosity by donating to the podcast via our Patreon campaign helped us to bring you this episode by enabling us to send an interviewer to the conference. Our current goal for Patreon is to be able to send an interviewer to the IROS conference later this year. The Robohub podcast will, of course, always be free to anyone, anywhere. But our Patreon campaign is an important part that helps us to ensure we're able to bring you the latest and most exciting news and views on robotics. So if you can spare a few dollars a month, please consider becoming a supporter by visiting robohub.org forward slash podcast to find out more. And you'll also find all our past episodes there. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. ICRA with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.